As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and on today's episode, we're talking the CONCACAF Women's Championship in general, more specifically, the U.S. Women's National Team and their preparations for that competition. Here to do so with me is a man responsible for roughly one-sixth of all the soccer content on the internet. It's Joe Lowry. Hi, Joe. Hello, Taylor. Yeah, I mean, that percentage might be just a, a little bit high, but nah. I am, I'm certainly trying to keep myself busy over here, Taylor. Yeah, it does seem that way, man. You've got backfield, you've got the athletic, MLS soccer, total soccer show. How are you able to cover that much? And I don't even mean it that jokingly. It just feels like for me, writing always took a very long time and was a much slower, more deliberative process. And I would struggle to even turn out like quick little news articles because I put way too much like thought and analysis and worried about them too much. It feels like you're able to kind of focus down and, and get stuff out. I I try. I mean, it's it is difficult. And I think at times, if I'm really in the podcasting rhythm, then the podcasts tend to flow a lot easier and they're easier to get out. And if I really settle down and and try to get in the writing rhythm, I can do a similar thing. Writing always takes longer and I, I feel more pressure to really to really dive into a topic because you know that you can go back in and make as many edits as you need before you post something. And I guess even after you post something, but still I feel this pressure to make sure everything is so perfect because I have the time and it's not, I know podcasts aren't live, but, but these are much closer to being a live exercise than an article is. So it's different. And sometimes it's hard to go back and forth between the two, but I I really do enjoy doing both. And I'm glad that I have the chance to do both. We do sort of treat it as a live performance, I guess, because there's not a, a ton of edits to this one. We don't sort of hash a lot out before we start recording. So in that way, I take your point. You do have to sort of be prepped, but then be ready to kind of move on the yeah. fly, whereas writing it out, maybe a bit more detail. Sure. Yeah. And then at, at that point, then I just feel like I have to nail every. I mean, I, I kind of feel that way regardless, but I like the exercise for both. They're, they're different experiences, and I, I think they're both fun. Is there a piece we will talk women's soccer in the US and uh Concacaf Women's Championship in a moment. Joe, if like if somebody gave you the opportunity to write a long form, a very long form article or even like a short book, is there a topic that you would 
most enjoy getting into? Is there something that you feel like you haven't been able to explore the way you would like? Yeah, these these are kind of related ideas. And I guess somebody's welcome to steal them now that I'm tossing them out, but I hope you don't. I, I, I want to go through at some point and really try to chronicle the evolution of soccer on the field in the United States from when the game first started and into all the way now in the 21st century. I think it would be fascinating to look at how the game has changed. I know a lot of that would mirror the evolution in other parts of the world. Michael Cox has written some really good books about that topic for different parts of the world. But I'd be curious to see what intricacies there are in the U.S. I had the idea the other day to go through and watch, you know, games from each decade that I can find online somewhere and, and maybe dig through archives somewhere else. And so I think there's a lot that could be done with that. I haven't gotten the chance to do it yet, but maybe someday. So you, you basically want to be the American Michael Cox. Are you going to stake that claim out and let him uh, fight you for it? Um, I've never seen Michael Cox in person or anything beyond just his head. So I don't know if I want to fight Michael Cox. I know we kind of talked about like fighting other journalists on, on yesterday's show. <laughs> so maybe I could take him. Maybe not either way. I, I don't think I want to mess with that. All right. Well, while we let that beef uh, simmer, <laughs> Joe, let's talk the CONCACAF Women's Championship for a second. Uh, can you tell us a bit about the tournament and the significance it has for future tournaments? Sure. So the W Championship, and I'm basically reading verbatim from a, uh, a piece that Ariana Cascone had up for Backheel a few weeks ago now. The W Championship includes eight teams from across North and Central America and the Caribbean. It starts on July 4th. That's this upcoming Monday and goes through July 18th. There are eight teams in the tournament. They're drawn into two different groups. The U.S. Women's National Team is in Group A, along with Mexico, Jamaica, and Haiti. And then there's Canada, Costa Rica, Panama, and Trinidad and Tobago over in Group B. The, the, the significance of this tournament is more than just a, a continental championship. It's not that, right? This is not the, the gold cup for the women, although there will be one of those coming up in a couple of years. This is qualification. It, it's branded differently, but this is basically a world cup and Olympic qualifications. So the top two teams from each group will qualify for the women's world cup and they go on to the knockout stages of this tournament. The third place teams can still go and qualify for the world cup through an intercontinental playoff, blah, blah, blah. Either way, the, the, that's one piece of this deal. So if you finish in the top two, you're going in your group, you're going to the world cup. If you finish at the top of this entire tournament and you win this whole darn thing, you're going to the summer Olympics as well. And, and it's difficult to qualify for the Olympics, Taylor, because there's not a ton of spots, right? It's not a massive tournament on the soccer side for, for really the men or the women. So those spots are a little harder to come by than the World Cup. So that's why you have to make it all the way to the final and then win that final. The U.S. will have to do that if they want to automatically qualify for the Olympics. There's another way to go about doing that, but in terms of the simplest and, and easiest path, winning your group or at least getting out of your group in the top two and then winning the whole tournament is exactly the way you want to go. And the tournament will be hosted in Mexico. That's the first time that's happened since 2010. Uh, the previous two iterations were in the United States. And I bring that up to mention that the last time it was in Mexico, uh, Canada were your eventual champions, Mexico your runners-up, the United States in third place. Uh, that would be a pretty disastrous res result this time around. Joe, do you feel like playing away from home could have a negative effect or might there be positive effects as well? I mean, I don't really know what positive effects come from that. I think it will be a challenge for this U.S. team, but I think they have more than enough talent. They do have more than enough talent to overcome whatever difficulties come with playing on the road, depending on field conditions and depending on what those environments are like in the stands. I think the U.S. will face challenges through that, Taylor. But, I mean, you look at some of the players on this team. You look at the front line, even even with all the players the U.S. is missing, and maybe we'll talk about that later. But, man, the players in the attack, Mallory Pugh on the left wing, Sophia Smith on the right wing, it's probably going to be Alex Morgan starting starting up top, but even Ashley Hatch coming in. She's the other number nine in this roster. She's a very strong player as well for the Washington Spirit. There's tons of talent in the midfield. Maybe 
I know there's names missing, but maybe more creative attacking talent in that group than there has been in quite some time now. And then the defense is still strong. So I, I feel really good about this team. They are not perfect, and, and maybe we'll talk about that later on as well. They are not perfect, but man, they are a very strong team that is capable of beating anyone in the world on any given day. And and I understand why my question there was slightly confusing, because you're right, playing on the road, not usually seen as a, a good thing. But I guess for me, for how dominant this U.S. women's team has been for so long, like playing at home in a tournament, it, it just feels like they stay in their comfort zone. They kind of are used to it. They've got so sure. many crowds. They've got a bunch of supporters there. On the road, at the very least, it puts them in a more hostile atmosphere. It takes them away from that comfort zone. And so then we get to see how the U.S., sort of responds in meaningful competitions on the road. Yeah. In my mind, that's a thing we don't get to see as much. Yeah, no, Taylor, that's a really good point. And it's it's this balance of, sure, going on the road is going to be more difficult. And I, I'm, I'm quite confident that anyone in this U.S. program would prefer to be playing these games at home in yeah. terms of automatically getting to the Olympics and the World Cup. But if they are able to do that and everything goes smoothly, which is not a guarantee, to be clear, but if everything does go smoothly, how much better off will this team be for having gone through this experience? It's not... This is not a super young team in the grand scheme of soccer teams all over the world, but this is this addition and this roster that Vlaco called in is a younger roster than the one that he took to the Olympics, which is the only other major tournament that Vlaco Andonovsky has, has coached the U.S. in during his time in charge since he was hired. So this is this is a big deal. And he finally has made over the last year, basically after the Olympics, he's finally made some changes in this squad and they have gotten younger, especially uh, left back and, and some of the spots in midfield and, and on the wing as well. This is a younger group. And so having the chance for these players to go out and get this kind of experience, a lot of them have done it before on the squad, but some of them haven't. And I think, Taylor, to get back to the, the root of your question, that could ultimately be a valuable thing for the U.S. Uh, it's probably not as important as actually qualifying, but if you can do both, I think that's exactly where you want to be. So I do want to talk about that roster. I do want to talk about it, the different position groups and the strengths and potential vulnerabilities that exist. First, I think it might be worth going over the basics of this team, because for some folks, maybe they haven't watched them since the Olympics, or they've only watched a few friendlies here and there. Um, what would you say, if people are tuning in and haven't seen this team maybe in six months or a year, Starting off, how aggressive do you think this team is going to be when they don't have the ball? That does seem to be a thing that Vlatko wants to be a hallmark of this side. Yes, they will be aggressive. They will be super aggressive. That's the first line uh, that that really Vlatko gave me. I think it was the first line. It was a while back now that I, that I talked to him in a, in a presser for the U.S. Women's National Team. He said, we attack without the ball. That's the, the phrase that the team uses internally to remind themselves of their tactical identity. So that's referring to how aggressive they want to be defensively. There, there's another part of that quote where he says, we don't defend for our lives. We don't defend our goal. We attack. Still talking about the U.S. without the ball, to be clear. So he basically wants them to be on the front foot all the time defensively to attack without the ball. I think it's a really good motto, and it's a good encapsulation of how this U.S. team wants to play. They will high press. If, if you're willing to play out of the back or, or really possess the ball at all, they're going to press you wherever you are. And maybe the part of this pressure scheme that we see the most from the U.S. women's national team is counterpressing. Because they tend to be a really possession-dominant team, because they're at a massive talent advantage in Almost every game they play, certainly almost every game they've played since the Olympics, because they have so much of the ball, they don't always get a chance to high press where the other team's trying to build from the back and play nice, pretty passes because teams are afraid to do that. So instead, 
the types of pressures that we see most often from this U.S. group is counterpressing. They'll, they'll go, and as soon as they lose the ball in the final third, you have Rose Lavelle buzzing around in midfield to win it back. You have Ashley Sanchez buzzing around to win it back. You have the wingers pressing aggressively up high, the nine and, and the six, and, and the fullbacks pushing up, the center back stepping in to, uh, to forecheck. That's what Jesse Marsh always calls that move when the center backs are stepping into midfield in the counterpress. All of that stuff you'll see from the U.S. in, in every single game they play. In these two most recent friendlies against Colombia, I think they, it, it was happening so often. Colombia really did not want the ball, Taylor. And so they were willing to let the U.S. have it. And the U.S. said, fine, but as soon as we lose it, we're not letting you have it for any extended period of time. That is, I think, the first thing that people will notice when the U.S. is playing is how aggressive or one of the first things that people will notice is how aggressive they are when they lose possession. And when they win the ball back with that press, in, in your opinion, do they want, does the United States want to be sort of like the Liverpool model of immediate, like fast, rapid attack and try to exploit space and try to kind of get some opportunities? Or is it win the ball back and then build possession, slow it down and pick your spots? It much more is that Liverpool aggressive okay. vertical passing. Now, Liverpool... Have, have kind of reverted back a little bit toward, if, if you think about this as a scale with super direct on, on one side and much more patient and, and maybe lateral with some of the passes on the other side. I think in the early stages of Liverpool, Jurgen Klopp's team was much more towards that aggressive vertical passing side. Now maybe they're trending back towards the middle. This U.S. team is probably closer to the middle than it is to either end, but they're definitely closer to the, the aggressive vertical passing end than they are to the lateral patient possession end. I think at times, Taylor, and I don't know how much you remember us, us covering the Olympics. So it was you, me, and Jordan doing a bunch of those shows last summer. And, and really, the U.S., I thought, was vertical to a fault in that tournament mm-hmm. under Vlaco. They were, they were almost hopelessly vertical where they just couldn't, couldn't think about doing anything else with the ball than playing hopeful long balls into the forward line. I didn't think the possession spacing was all that good. I think a lot of that has gotten better. It's not perfect, but a lot of it's gotten better. But still, I mean, even Vlaco's talked about how they're trying to get the ball upfield as quickly as possible. They're trying to get it into their dual eights in that 4-3-3. Those players tend to be really creative. They're trying to get the ball to the wingers so they can either drive at you or, or so they can move in behind and thread through balls into those players. They want to get the ball from point A to point B, very, point B excuse me, very quickly. And I think that's another thing that folks will notice when they watch this team. They've previously also, I would say, struggled to break down teams in a block or in a low block. I know this was an issue you spent some time on this week. What have you seen or heard to suggest the U.S. has concrete ideas for how to handle that defensive block? Uh, I heard, I read some of Vlatko's comments, and, and I guess I still found myself slightly confused by the slight vagueness of them. Maybe that was just me being overly critical. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on how they're going to handle a block, Joe. Yeah, so I asked Vlaco in a press conference, basically, you know, what is your approach to breaking down a low block? Thinking back to the Olympics and really even dating back to Jill Ellis's time in charge of the U.S. women's national team, they haven't been, for the most part, super dynamic and, and effective in the final third against a low block. It's been pretty uh, rudimentary and a, a lot of crosses. And so I asked Vlaco basically, what what is it that you all are trying to do? What's your philosophy and how do you approach breaking blocks? And he basically said, it's not a secret. There's six, seven, eight steps that teams take. Now it comes down to the execution of those steps. And then he mentioned a few of them. So he said progression in the wide channel, combinations in front of the box, runs behind the back line, early crosses, crosses on the side or crosses from the half space. And I think a lot of that's good information. Like Those are real things that teams try to do to break down a low block, which is the hardest thing to do in soccer. Teams try to do that stuff. And the U.S. tries to do that stuff. But for me, Taylor, 
they fall a little too far, maybe a lot too far at times towards the crossing end of, of those steps. So they'll do a lot of early crosses. They'll play a lot of early crosses. They'll play a lot of crosses from the wing and they'll, they'll play a lot of crosses from the half space. And I think it's a little too much of that and not quite enough of combinations in front of the box and runs behind the back line and targeting those, those Manchester City zones, those corridors on the outside of the box to then play a cutback into a number nine or into a late arriving eight or whoever that player is making a run into the space in the middle of the box for a one-touch or a two-touch shot, those opportunities are there for the U.S. And, and they will take advantage of them, but not enough. I went back through, and, and I know, at least I think, Taylor, you're referencing part of the article that I wrote for Backheel that, that went out earlier today. I went back through and looked at some of my notes in the past in the U.S. Women's National Team, and there was a game against Canada a while back in the She Believes Cup where the U.S. crossed the ball 42 times in a 1-0 win. And I, I think that number is really telling about how this U.S. team tries to approach play in the final third and and in these most recent games against Colombia they were at something like low, uh, low 30s or an upper 20 crosses in both of those games they're really reliant on that and and the US can and will score goals off of those crosses you have plenty of players that can convert those chances but it, it feels like an inefficient way to go about trying to break blocks and i think if the US could sort of diversify a little bit of what they're doing in the final third, and maybe they will over the course of the CONCACAF W Championship because we all know they're going to play low blocks, especially in the group stage. If they can diversify how they attack, this team's ceiling goes from already pretty darn high to basically invisible because it's so high up. (laughs) Um, One way they seem to be diversifying which is an odd thing to say about committing fewer numbers to the attack, is in the way that Vlatko is using the fullbacks. Uh, from what I have read, specifically from you, uh, th- it's that they're not overcommitting them, they're not having them be as involved in the attack as we've seen when it was Crystal Dunn and Ali Krieger. It sounds like he's keeping them a little bit deeper, and my assumption is that's, number one, to nullify the threat of the counterattack from a low block, but also, number two, to sort of give you different options in different areas of the field, rather than just sort of send everybody forward, have numbers committed, but then not have a ton of movement or ideal spacing. It depends on the moment. And I think from even game one against Columbia to game two, you could see the fullbacks in, in the second game pushing a little higher and a little wider, um, which is something we will see from the U.S. And, and have seen in the past. But a lot of the time, if you look at where, especially on the right with Kelly O'Hara and, and uh, Sofia Huerta, both of those players tend to play a lot of those early crosses or crosses in the half space that Vlaco talked about. That's something I think they really look for from those players by keeping the right back especially a little deeper, again, not all the time, but at times, it allows the right winger to have a little more flexibility to move to either shift wide or to tuck inside. It allows those players to make those well-timed runs in behind from maybe a bending ball from whoever's playing right back. You could bend it from, from out to in to have a player meet it behind the back line. You can do all sorts of different things with that. It's not like the right back is going to tuck in a lot of the time, at least next to the, the center backs to form a back three. It's not that extreme, but there is some, some real positional versatility and there are a lot of rotations in how this U.S. team attacks. Now, for me, again, it's, it's just about how can they manage to find the balance between, yes, putting some numbers forward, also keeping some back to protect against the counter uh, uh, when they're playing against better teams. How do you find the balance between those things and also how do you become a little more creative and a little less reliant on some of those crosses, even though that's part of the reason why I think the fullbacks are a little more reserved at times. That makes sense to me. Uh, Up next, we're going to break down the roster in a bit more detail. First, we're going to take a quick break to hear from today's sponsors. Back soon. 
Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willingly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms, and you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Well, luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, Joe Lowry, we are back. We've talked a bit about the tactics. I'm sure that we will continue to kind of pepper those in as we go. Uh, but in order to talk about this roster, uh, I want to talk first about who is not there. Uh, again, paraphrasing or just stealing directly from your article. <laughs> Katarina Macario, Lynn Williams, Sam Uis, Abby Dahlkemper, and Tina Davidson are all out injured, as is Kristen Press, although she was apparently going to be left off this roster even before her knee, knee injury. That feels like a... An exclamation point on that one. Yeah. Crystal Dunn, who just had a baby. Julie Ertz, who is pregnant. And Tobin Heath, who hasn't played a game since April, are all also not there. That's nine pretty prominent names. And I, I think I'm still sort of confused. I'm not, I don't even know how to formulate this as a question because I don't really want to put you on the spot. But basically, I'm just confused if this is a sort of transitional moment. And if these young players impress, have they sort of solidified their spot or once many of those names come back, is there a chance that we see like all nine of those players back on the field for the United States? It feels like Vlaco still is going to have 
a lot of big questions, oh, yeah. a lot of big decisions to make. And in some ways, I almost wonder if he's sort of grateful to be able <laughs> yeah. to experiment this much this time. I was thinking the exact same thing, Taylor. I was thinking about this roster and the omissions and, and the absences the other day and thinking, man, Vlaco's life just got a lot easier. Instead <sighs> of, I mean, instead of having to debate, do you bring, I mean, do you bring Tobin Heath or not? You, you just sort of say, yeah, she hasn't been playing games. And I, I wouldn't have brought her anyway to this camp. Who do you leave off in the center back squad? Do you bring Emily Sonnet or not? She can play every role in the back line. But if Abby Dahlkamper and, and Tierna Davidson are both fit and ready to go, somebody has to, to drop off the squad because you only have 23 players. So I definitely think Vlaco, in some ways, will be relieved that some of these decisions were made for him. And basically the biggest controversy was Kristen Press, who he apparently wasn't going to bring to the roster anyway. But then she she turned out to be injured. So it, it didn't really matter. There can be some hubbub about that. And I think Vlaco's comments basically just spilling the beans and saying she wasn't going to be in the squad probably didn't help him in that way. But there just isn't a lot of controversy. Katarina Macario being out injured basically picks your forward group for you. And you say, yeah, I'll just bring Morgan and Hatch and call it good and bring an extra winger and, and everybody will be happy. So I think in a lot of ways, Vlaco's life was made easier. It will not always be this easy. These players will be healthy. The U.S. is always going to be missing some players. But this group and a good chunk of them will come back and be fit and ready for big tournaments in the future. And he's still going to have difficult choices to make. To go back, though, to to part of your question, Taylor... I still do think this is a transitional moment for the U.S. It is the first big tournament that we're going to get to see some of these younger players really involved. And I don't think they're going to relinquish those spots going forward. Sophia Smith and, and Pew, who, of course, has been involved with the U.S. for quite some time now. But those players are the wingers now. Megan Rapino and, and Tobin Heath's time is largely over. Rapinoe's still in this squad, and I think there's reasons for that. But she's not going to be an every-game starter. We're, we're past that at this point. In the midfield, Rose Lavelle is still there. Lindsay Horan is still there. They're in their late 20s. They're established players. But Ashley Sanchez is, is breaking in. And I don't think she's going away anytime soon either. She might not be an every-game starter, but she will start at least one game, if not more, in this tournament. I'd be very surprised if that wasn't the case. Then you look at spots like the six and, and left back, and that's when and even center back. That's when things start to get a little murkier. Mm-hmm. I think Julie Ertz, if she's she's ready to come back and play, I still think she's the best six that the U.S. has and, and maybe the best American six on the planet right now. Crystal Dunn is a different player than Emily Fox at left back, and I think we'll see more of Fox going forward. But Dunn is is so incredibly good at so many different things. I don't know if you leave her out of this squad. And same at center back. Alana Cook is the starter now next to Becky Sauerbrunn. Cook's 25. She's a little younger and hasn't been as as involved with the U.S. in the past. But I don't know if she'll keep that starting spot going forward. So it really is a couple of of names, especially in the in the attack and in those number eight spots. Those players aren't going away any anytime soon. Now it's about if these players do come back. Katarina Macario is another one. When she's healthy, she is the nine for this team, and she's a young player as well. It's just a question of Ertz and Dunn in the center backs, and maybe a couple other players who could make Vlaco's life very very difficult. So let's talk about uh, the. Roster position by position, and I would say a player who doesn't make Vlatko's life too difficult is Alyssa Nair, who uh, is in this roster, we would assume, will be the starter and will continue to be the starter for a good long while. Uh, she is 34 years old, but for a goalkeeper, that's just, that's that's baby years. Yeah. Uh, and then we've got uh, Casey Murphy from the North Carolina Courage and Aubrey Kingsbury from the Washington Spirit. Uh, Joe, I'm assuming that you would agree Alyssa Nair will be the number one? I do agree. I, I don't think on talent that she's vastly better than either Murphy or Kingsbury at this point. I, her shot stopping numbers haven't been great in the NWSL this year with the Chicago Red Stars, but with her experience, I would be a little surprised if she doesn't start. I, I think 
she played one of these. She did play one of these two friendlies against Colombia. She didn't start both of them, but she started the second one. And maybe that's a, a little bit of momentum for her coming into the actual W championship. The other question I have for you, Taylor, is there a difference between baby years and human years? That's I mean, that's just the pressing question that everyone wants to know. <laughs> baby years move way faster and yet uh, at the same time feel like they're taking a really long time. Checks I think that's, a, that's, an, that's an honest answer as opposed to a good comedic answer for that's, the purposes of the goalkeeper position. That's the parents' explanation of the baby years, right? Taking <laughs> yeah, a really long time. So. <laughs> Taking a long time, but seemingly moving at light speed sure. simultaneously sure. Uh, while you're exhausted. Yeah, that's how that works out. Um, this U.S. team probably not going to be too exa- exhausted too early in the group stage. They've got uh, Haiti first, then Jamaica, then Mexico. Uh, so we don't know how busy the U.S. backline will be, but let's Let's talk about the defense for a second, Joe. Let's talk about center backs. Becky Sauerbrunn, we know, will be the anchor there. As you mentioned, Alana Cook likely to be her partner. Uh, Who else could play at center back in this tournament? So there's a couple of different options. One is Naomi Girma, who's pretty new to the U.S. national team picture. She's only been involved very briefly in, in recent windows, in a recent window back in April, I believe. She is a rookie in the NWSL this year with the San Diego Wave and expansion team. And she's been good. She's been, I think, one of the best center backs in the league. Ariana Cascone seems to agree with me on that when we've talked about her game. She's a very talented player. She's a little... You can tell she's not quite polished in, in some of her movement and in some of her, her actual play on the ball, but she is talented in possession. She can drive forward. She's composed on the ball, generally speaking, and she can keep up defensively. So she's a, a very talented player. I'm hoping we'll see more of her in this window. And then the other center back, and, and this is just a player I mentioned earlier who can play pretty much every spot in the back line, it's Emily Sonnet. She plays as a center back for the Washington Spirit in, in, in the league, but she can play center back, she can play right back, she can even play a little bit of left back, although I don't think she's she's first or even second choice at that spot. She is this defensive utility player that can pop up wherever Vlaco needs her to. And in, in a tournament where you have a fixed roster, like you do for every tournament that exists, having someone like that who can deputize at a bunch of different spots, I think has a lot of value. Yeah, especially with only 23 players, not an expanded roster or anything like that. It does feel like Emily Sonnet will continue to be involved in this team because she basically gives you depth and fills a bunch of spots so that you don't have to maybe overpopulate the roster with a ton of defenders. Interesting to me that there are only, I believe, seven outright defenders on this roster. And she does give you cover at left back, at right back, and at center back. It's strange to me that I believe I'm correct in saying that the backup left backs for the United States are basically both also backup right backs and then one of them is a center back. (laughs) Is that a good thing in your mind or a bad thing? Like we've talked about it on the men's side of having Serginho Dest as like the starting right back, but also the backup left back. Not quite the case here, but I always worry about not having a like right back to back up the right back, a left back to back up the left back, two center backs and away we go. I mean, I think it is, it's notable. I don't know how much it will affect this team because of how top heavy they are. I think you could put pretty much anybody at left back in this entire squad and they could still do some real damage against teams that are, are going to defer to them a little fair. bit in the open play yeah. just because of, of the talent differential. I do think there's something to that, Taylor. We saw Pickett play in the second friendly against Columbia and she is a left footer on that side. Emily Fox will be the starting left back in this team. She's the only true left back. Kelly O'Hara has played there some uh, in the league and, and has done that some for the national team as well in Crystal Dunn's absence. So there's cover there. I think I don't know if it's a concern or not, to be honest, and maybe we'll learn more about that as the tournament goes. But I think Fox is going to play a lot and assuming she stays healthy, which I guess is the big assumption, it's probably not going to impact this team too much. And since I think I've moved this to the fullbacks, uh, on the right side, would the listing be Kelly O'Hara and then uh, Sofia Huerta and then Emily Sonnet? 
Yeah, so that's the three. I, I still think O'Hara is the is the primary starter in this team. She's comfortable in some different vertical channels. She adds a lot of value from her passing in some of those deeper spots that I talked about earlier. I think she's a useful player. Uh, and, and basically, after that, you have Huerta, who I think is very similar, has a very similar profile. She'll pinch in maybe a little more and, and is maybe a little more aggressive at times, but they're they're very similar players in how they approach uh, positioning and how they, how they pass the ball on that right side. And then Sonnet, who pops up everywhere along the back line. And then you, you mentioned this, uh, briefly earlier that, uh, with, with, with Fox, that Emily Fox, that she, you think maybe she will be a bit more attacking. Are you expecting her to be sort of similar in positioning to where Kelly O'Hara will be? I think it depends on the moment and depends on the phase of play. I think Fox will pinch into the half spaces. We saw that against uh, against Columbia in the first game, the one that she actually played in. She will tuck inside. And so in that way, there are similarities with how Vlaco uses both of his fullbacks. But when I watch Fox for Louisville or when I even watch you know a lot of her minutes with the national team, she seems to me like a player that is more capable of going north-south. She just seems faster and a little more linear than, than either of the two primary right backs, Huerta or O'Hara. So I think in that way, it makes a little more sense for Fox to try to push to the end line and cut the ball back instead of staying a little deeper and cross the ball in. And I think Vlaku sees that and knows that too. I don't know how much of that we'll see, but profile-wise, Fox is a little different than either of the two primary right backs on that opposite side. Let's move to central midfield. Julie Ertz pregnant, uh, missing this tournament. In her absence, Andy Sullivan has become the regular starter at defensive midfield. But it sounds like like Andy Sullivan can be very, very good. She can be exceptionally good at this position. Ultimately, Julie Ertz, I believe you said, is like the best player in the world at this spot. So if it's not a like-for-like swap, how similar is what Sullivan uh, is doing in that spot, in that role, to what we've seen Julie Ertz do in the past? It's it's a very similar role. That that okay. role was designed as that six in the four three three. So there's just to to take one step back maybe and zoom out. There's the back four and the positioning of the fullbacks changes. We've talked plenty about that. So at times in possession, it looks like a two three five with the fullbacks joining the front line. At other times, it looks like a two three five with the number eights pushing up into the forward line and the wingers being wide or, or even the eights being wide and the wingers being narrow. Sometimes it looks like a back three depending on on where the six and, and the fullbacks are. It just depends. But either way, the number six is role and this will be Sullivan's role, just like it was Ertz's role, is to shield, it's to shift and to counterpress, it's to really just be a reliable, occasional line breaker, but, but really just a possession-recycling defensive midfielder who can just be a platform for all of the other extremely talented and, and even flashy at times players, both in midfield and in the forward line that's ahead of her. Sullivan does that job. She's not quite as physical or, or aggressive in my mind as, as a peak Julie Ertz. Not many players are, I don't think, Taylor, in, in the whole world as aggressive as Julie Ertz. But she's good at pretty much everything. She's not flashy, but she's an above-average player at, at basically everything you could ask from her. I think she reads the game well. She can shift laterally. She can step in vertically to win the ball. She can keep possession moving. I, I think she checks all the boxes. I don't think it's like a check plus on any one of the boxes. But she will be the every game starter as, as much as she can go with Flacco not bringing another de facto number six. She's going to start a lot of games in this tournament. Lindsay Horan is probably the other one. Vlaco mentioned it after the game the other night against Columbia that Horan will get minutes at the six in this tournament, too. We've seen that uh, in the past and we've seen that in this most recent window, too. Horan can do that job. They're, they're different uh, players. And, and Christy mm-hmm. Mewis is also in that group, too, in terms of players who can deputize. But Sullivan is the player who's just going to provide that strong foundation and platform for all of the really talented and skillful players in front of her to go to work in the attack. 
So if Sullivan isn't as physical as Juliet, if she's not as aggressive, Joe, in your opinion, is that then a task that someone else has to kind of pick up and perform? Or with the way the U.S. is playing, the way they want to attack, the way they want to press, does that physicality that Ertz brings, is that uh, less essential? Is it basically just the system makes up for it as opposed to an individual? Yeah, I think it is the system that makes up okay. for it. When you have Julie Ertz, you, you go from super aggressive to just absurdly aggressive, right? So th- there is that little difference, that gap between one and the other playing with her and playing without her. But I mean, the U.S. still with all of the profiles they have, the, the forwards and even the number eights just are, are so aggressive, both with club and country. They can press all day. They can run all day. You still have plenty of attacking firepower. You still have plenty of defensive mobility in this team, even without Julia. It's, it's fun to watch this team when they do have her. But I think they're still going to be just fine defensively and in those transition moments with with someone like Andy Sullivan in that spot. All right. So let's say in this tournament, the United States is emphasizing like pressing, winning the ball back either high up force it or forcing the opposition to go long and then building possession from there. So the United States is going to press, win the ball back. And then once they do, I'm building this hypothetical scenario, Joe, uh, that then they want to possess and keep the ball moving and have a midfield that's capable of sort of picking apart opposition defenses, finding those gaps, playing those through balls. So you can have that combination of possession and verticality. If Andy Sullivan is going to be your number six, who would you, Joe, most like to see start so you do have that technical ability in midfield to be able to combine those passes and still find those passing lanes? I mean, you you almost can't go wrong with some of the options that the U.S. has in the number eight spots. But my favorite pairing, just because I, I think these players are so much fun to watch, is Rose Lavelle on the one side. So she'll be on the right. And Ashley Ashley Sanchez, excuse me, That's on the other side. I was side. wondering. They yeah. are they are so similar in how they play. They're, and they're both, I, I almost can't even describe, they're both so much fun to watch. If you haven't taken some time, go watch them play. Just watch compilations, either on Twitter or on, on YouTube. They are like the classic, skillful, almost, almost Brazilian type in a, in a stereotypical way. Central midfielders, they're so clean on the ball. They're technical. They can thread through balls. They're both good with, with both feet. Ashley Sanchez-Taylor comes off the bench in the first game against Colombia over the weekend. And I think her first involvement is to show to the ball and then just dummy it through to the left wing. And, and she just, she had just stepped on the field and she's already coming out here and saucing up the field. They both are like that. Lavelle is, is probably the better player of the two. She's certainly more experienced with the national team. Her numbers in the NWSL are just ridiculous with the range. She plays a little wider for them than she does for Vlatko, but her sauce levels, levels are, are off the charts. She's fantastic to watch, and, and Ashley Sanchez is very similar. They'll both buzz around and win the ball after they lose it. They're creative in possession. These eights, Taylor, I think, to, to really go along with the wingers, the eights are the, the beating heart of this team with how they do try to control the game in central areas. They're almost right now... The, the one hope that the U.S. team has to be more diverse in the attack and to stop relying quite so much on crosses, early crosses, half space, half space crosses, crosses from the wing. The, the best sequences of attacking play, I think, come from these number eights, really building and combining, playing the number nine as that player drops in a little bit, playing balls in behind, back heels in the box, whatever that looks like. They're so much fun to watch. And I feel a little harsh leaving Haran off of my top mm-hmm. two because she is also capable of a lot of that stuff. She's not as shifty. Her her Her... Her profile is different in that way, but she can also win the ball back physically. She's plenty technical in possession. She can distribute from deep. She's a willing off-ball runner. She'll make late arriving runs in the box. She's a danger on set pieces. 
you really can't go wrong with any of those players. If I have to break down a low block, though, Taylor, I think I prefer seeing Sanchez and Lavelle in together and then Haran maybe coming off the bench in the 60th minute or the 75th minute to try and give you some, some, something of a boost later on in the second half. Uh, you've sort of already anticipated the next question and sort of already answered it, but I'm going to ask it anyway. If it is Haran starting over Ashley Sanchez... Which I think it will be, to be clear. Yeah. I, I think that is the, the number one pairing. Yeah, I, I do too. And that's why I phrased it, because phrased it the way I did, because it felt to me like you... Basically, my assumption was you were going to argue for Lavelle and Sanchez, yeah. but I feel like there's <laughs> always going to be that pressure to be like, Lavelle and Haran, that's just who it is, because yeah. they're the and two best. And that's fine. Like, that, is, that is totally mm-hmm. fine. That pairing is is definitely good enough to get you points. Yeah. So if it is Haran over Sanchez, what are the things that you gain? And then what are the things that maybe you lose as a result? Because I know that she is very, very good at many, many things, but there are still things that maybe Ashley Sanchez does better. And then there are things that Lindsay Haran does better. Yeah. So Haran, we'll start with set pieces. She is more of a target on set pieces and, and can be dangerous in those moments, especially in a tournament. Uh, I think that's really important and can add a ton of value. So I wouldn't blame Blacko at all. Given how much this team relies on service from wide areas, I wouldn't blame him at all for starting Haran to try and, and extract a little extra value and, and a little extra attacking power from set pieces with Haran on the field. I think that makes sense. Other things, when Haran plays for Lyon, and, and Lyon winning the Champions League with Haran starting in midfield for them uh, just a few months ago now, a couple months ago, when Haran's in midfield and when she's playing for Lyon, she's more of... Uh, she plays a little deeper. I was going to say she's more of a two-way player, but I don't know that that's fair to Lavelle and, and Sanchez in particular because they both do play two ways as well. I, I think Haran is a little rangier in how she plays. She's comfortable in deeper areas. She does that job with her club, whereas Sanchez plays more as a number 10 for the spirit. It's a different role, and so Haran's maybe better suited to drop a little deeper and distribute from other areas. That's why, at least I think that's why Vlaco uses her as a number six and has her as that next player behind Andy Sullivan. She's comfortable breaking lines from deep. She'll sweep up plays. She'll move laterally in addition to vertically. A lot of those things are things that, that Sanchez does too, but Haran has a little more experience doing that stuff for the U.S. She's She's been around in the picture for the U.S. for a lot longer and also for Lyon. So I think those are some of the, the the differences. Just when you watch them, they look like very different players. They do a lot of the same things, but set pieces, some of the, the, the different roles they're asked to do for club and country, and, and maybe their profiles are all just a little different. So that would be the defense and the midfield. We're going to take one more break, then we're going to talk about that fairly prominent U.S. attack. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. 
From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. Welcome back to the Total Soccer Show. I'm guessing you never left. Joe, I know you never left. You've been sitting with me this whole time. Let's talk about the U.S. attack. Let's talk about the wide attack first. Who do you expect to start uh, on the right and left wings and who are the kind of backup depth options there as well? So it'll be Mallory Pugh on the left and Sophia Smith on the right. Blacko basically came out and just said that uh, earlier on before these two games against Columbia. He basically said, yeah, these are these are the starters, and it's going to take a lot for that to change. And he's right. You know, we watch these games against Columbia. You watch them in the, in the NWSL. Sophia Smith with the Portland Thorns, she's been phenomenal for them. And Mallory Pugh with the Red Stars, she's so good in that attack. They're very similar players. They're not identical, but the basic idea of how they play is similar. I talked with Sophia Smith earlier this week for for a piece of backfield, and she's basically said, yeah, players like myself and Mal, Mal Pugh, and, and Trinity Rodman, who's one of the backup options, we want to get him behind, we want to use our speed, we want to go at players. They're aggressive. They're, they are terrifyingly direct, Taylor, in how they play. As soon as there's a turnover, and, and this has been a theme for the U.S. for a long time, but I think they might be better at it now than they've ever been, question mark? Either, either way, when there's a turnover anywhere on the field, as soon as that ball turns over and the U.S. is in possession, it's, it's most likely a midfielder that's recovered it. At least two-thirds, if not the entire front line, but almost always both wingers are immediately sprinting in behind and running into space. Smith and, and Pew in particular are incredibly good at this because of how quick they are and how skilled they are on the ball. If they receive the ball in front of the back line, they can drive at you and beat you 1v1 and get in the box and create something there. If they receive the ball in behind the back line, you're, you're done. It's, it's over <laughs> at that point. I mean, Rodman falls into that category too. I don't think she's quite as disciplined or, or physically mature. She's also just less experienced as a soccer player right now. She's incredibly good for her age and, and a generational talent, I think. But because of Smith and Pew, she's one of the backup options on the right she can play on the left as well. Mitch Purse is included in this backup group. She, she might even be above Rodman based off of how that second Columbia game went. But they're both options on the right. And then you have Megan Rapino on the left, who is, is a very different player in, in, in how she approaches the game and how she attacks. Yeah, she'll run in behind, but I mean, that's not really her game. She likes to drop a little deeper on the left side. She likes to cut in on her right foot. She'll take some of the set pieces. She's a little more relaxed in how she approaches the game just because I think at her age now, and even when she was younger, she's just not that kind of player. She's lost some of the athleticism that I think just naturally happens when you head into your 30s. So that's the winger pool. Smith and Pew in particular, I, I, I just cannot imagine trying to defend them in the open field. And that's why teams try to sit deeper so much because they don't want to let those players attack in the open field. Was it Pew who was included on the 2019 
uh, roster, but then left out of the Olympics. Was that the story there? I honestly don't remember of this group. I mean, Pew has been around much longer in the U.S. picture. She's been talked about for a lot longer yeah. than Smith or Rodman. She's a little older, too. I think she's 24. Mm-hmm. So she has plenty of experience both under Vlacko and before Vlacko's time with the national team. So that would be back under Jill Ellis. She is a much more experienced player of those two and of Rodman, I guess, as well. But I think she certainly still should be included in this young group because this is really now Pew's team in the attack. It's really yeah, now Smith's team yeah. in the attack and, and those players combining with the midfielders. That is, I think, the, the real strength of this group. Yeah, that's sort of, uh, again, Joe, way to anticipate because that's that's sort of what I was getting at is that Pew was this player who really did burst onto the scene. Uh, I can't remember if she completely bypassed college or if she played like one year but didn't actually play. Either way, she's been with this program since 2016. And as you said, Joe, she is only 24 years old. So that tells you something. But then as I recall, it was like involved in the Olympics in 2016, involved in the Women's World Cup in 2019, but then not involved in the Olympics. And it sort of seemed like maybe she was on the outside looking in. And now to your point, it seems like she is one of the critical attackers. And I'm basically uh, just saying it's really nice to see that it feels like we've we've reached the point with Mallory Pugh where she is this kind of peak prime performer that we can expect to to be a starter or compete for a starting spot pretty much every single camp. Yeah, Pugh is one of the best players in the world. It, it's that simple. The U.S. has a lot of those players, but you look at her numbers in the NWSL, you watch her play for Chicago, you watch her play with the national team. The stuff she can do, accelerating so quickly, decelerating quickly, technical with both feet, direct in how she plays, dribble, uh, cap- capable of beating players on the dribble, willing to run in behind. She is maybe not quite a complete player because, I, I don't know, there aren't a, a ton of players that are just absolutely exceptional at everything. But other than maybe dropping in and trying to control games in a little deeper spaces, but that's not really what you want from her. She does everything. She checks all the boxes and, and then some. I think she is one of the best attackers in the entire world right now. And the fact that the U.S. has her and Sophia Smith on the wings. The only the only regret I have, Taylor, about this tournament, I know there's a lot of absences. I know there's a lot, a lot of players missing. Is Katarina Macario hurting her knee with Leon? Because if Macario is in this front line, not only does the narrative get better, which makes life fun for for all of us, because then you have three young attackers that are dynamic and are, are really sort of breaking into this team and making them their own, making this team their own. Not only do you have that narrative, but Macario, with how she drops in and how she connects play as a false nine at times, having her dropping in to then release the wingers in behind is just that that combination is is so good. And it almost makes my mouth water thinking about watching those three play. And we've seen it before. We've seen Macario as the nine with wingers running in behind. But I wish we could have seen it in this tournament. And I just really hope we get to see it at the World Cup. Should the U.S. make it that far and at the Olympics in in 2024? So instead, we would assume it's going to be either Alex Morgan or Ashley Hatch, but most likely Alex Morgan. How does she fit into the team then? If she can't quite do what Katarina Macario would have been able to, what does Alex Morgan do that kind of separates her, gives her the the, the nod to start this tournament? Outside of just all of the goals that Alex Morgan has scored and all of the time she spent in this program, she loves to run in yeah, behind as well. Not too yeah, bad. Yeah, Not you too know, bad from her. She knows how to put the ball in the back of the net. Outside of that and her track record, she loves to run in behind and she almost contributes to this U.S. team being extremely dangerous in transition. And we talked about that before, maybe more on the defensive side. Now with the wingers and in the front line, especially when Morgan is starting, they're they're lethal in those transition moments and the ball turns over. I talked about that a little bit already. So they're incredibly dangerous in those situations. And Morgan just adds to that and, and, and makes another player 
who's willing to move in behind and really threaten the back line. So she'll do that stuff. I think one thing that Alex Morgan has improved over the last few years as well is her ability to drop in and, and link play. That's not her preference. And if you watch Macario and Morgan side by side, they're entirely different in that regard. But Morgan still drops in. She can still connect. And because she's played soccer for a long time now and played a ton of games at the international level and at the club level, she understands how to read the game. And I think that's a big advantage. Hatch, Hatch, for her part, I know, I know you maybe didn't ask, but comparing those two players, Hatch is more of your classic back to goal number nine. She'll drop in two. I, I think maybe not as much, not quite as much as Alex Morgan. I, I don't think there's a ton that separates those players, but I just don't think she's as good at it. I don't think she reads the game quite as much. Hatch is still going to play in this window. She's still going to get minutes. And because of how she bodies defenders, she will she will be an option at times in midfield. But I don't think she was exceptional at that in these friendlies against Columbia. I think that's something that she'll want to improve if, if really she wants to take over for Morgan in maybe the, the more medium term and still be around in the U.S. picture heading into the Macario era, which I'm fully expecting will start in full next summer. One more roster-oriented question for me, Joe. And it, I'm... I think it's really obvious, but also at the same time, I'm not sure it's that obvious. So I'm going to ask you, who do you think will contribute more meaningfully in this competition? Megan Rapino or Taylor Korniak? Oh, that's a great question. I didn't even mention Taylor Korniak earlier, which I feel bad about because I love watching her play. Six foot one, she's the tallest U.S. women's national team player of all time. But she's more than just her height. That She will add a ton of value on crosses and set pieces. She does all that stuff. But she's also pretty smooth on the ball and makes a lot of late-arriving runs in the box as a goal-scoring threat. She's awesome and fun to watch, and I'm glad she's in this squad after she the year she's had. That, she also has that, it seems, the connection, connection with Alex Morgan that I, I, I saw. You posted one in your article, but I've seen a couple other ones of her link-up play yeah. with Alex Morgan, playing some good balls over the top or yeah. some good balls through. So that also stuck out to me as being a potential link. Just because, though of how many options there are in midfield, I kind of think that Megan Rapinoe is going to play a little bit more for the U.S. in this tournament. There's not, after Pew, there's not another really defined left winger. I think Purse and and Rodman are more right wingers than they are left wingers. It's kind of splitting hairs, but Rapinoe, I think, is that that second name on Vlaco's depth chart over on the left. Whereas you have to dig a little deeper to get to Korniak in midfield and in those number eight spots. You have Muos is competing for those minutes. You have Sanchez, who I think will eat up a lot of those minutes next to Lavelle and Haran. So just because of how many names are in midfield, I think the answer is Rapino. Although, Taylor, that's a really good question, and I think we're going to find out more. Well, we are going to find out more basically starting next week. But it's safe to say then you, you wouldn't assume Megan Rapinoe will be starting no. a ton of these games. No, I, she might get a start. I mean, maybe she gets two. I, I really think it's going to be the Mal Pugh show on that left side. All right. I look forward to it. Joe, do you have any other expectations for this tournament? Any other things that you're particularly excited to see? My assumption is that if all goes to plan, we'll end up having a USA-Canada final, which should be pretty exciting. But you never know. You never know how these things play out, especially with Mexico playing at home. What will you be keeping an eye on, Joe? I just love watching this team. In terms mm-hmm. of things I'm excited about, this is an incredibly fun soccer team. They're the best U.S. soccer team that exists. They're the most talented soccer team, uh, talented American soccer team that's out there right now. They're fun to watch, and they're not perfect. And so seeing how they improve or if they improve on some of those issues in the final third that we talked about and getting to learn more about how this team tries to create chances, I think is fun, and I like that stuff. But just for, for people out there who are looking to get back into the U.S. Women's National Team or who have never left watching this team, 
It's a fun group of players. Just watch them. You'll enjoy it. You'll have a good time. Maybe you'll be frustrated at times like like I do get when cross number 24 is being played in the box from the right wing. There'll be those moments. But, man, you just can't. It is hard to find. Let me put it this way. It is hard to find a team of more talented soccer players, of as many talented soccer players playing together than than just the U.S. women's national team. So I'm excited to watch this group play I think seeing how Vlaco does in his second major tournament under as U.S. Women's National Team head coach is going to be a, a big storyline. That's something I'm watching for. Taylor, none of us were particularly high on him after the Olympics. I don't think he did a terribly good job in that tournament, to be totally honest. I thought the U.S. was poor, and a lot of that boiled down to their tactical deficiencies. So I think seeing how Vlaco does and how the team looks will say a lot about his status as U.S. manager ahead of big tournaments in the next couple of years. So that's a part of this. Seeing how some of the younger players really get integrated and take over this team is another part. There's so many fun storylines in addition to this team just being awesome and, and talented and incredibly gifted. All of those things are things I'm looking for, things I'm wondering about, things I'm excited about. And I'm, I'm hoping and I'm kind of banking on listeners being curious and excited about those same things. So the too long didn't read for this episode is watch the U.S. women's national team. You're going to have a good time. Yeah. Or, or maybe you'll be really frustrated, but even then that kind of might be interesting <laughs> and fun too. There we go. I like that. Well, Joe, I really appreciate your having all of the knowledge to talk about this team in the roster. We will be talking about the W Championship as it goes on. We will also be next week uh, taking a, a good long look at the Women's Euros, which kick, kicks off next week. Uh, a busy time for women's soccer this summer, so we're excited to cover that. But for now, Joe Lowry, thank you so much for taking the time from your busy schedule of writing all the soccer content to talk <laughs> about some of the soccer. You got it, Taylor. This was fun. Listeners, thank you so much for listening. Hopefully you found it fun as well. I certainly did. And we will talk to you all very soon.